You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the Church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of people of my same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had sent me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through, law, for through the law, I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live, in the flesh I live by, faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He wants the reading. I feel like we need to give Lily a round of applause for that reading this morning. It's a very complicated reading, and uh, to hear, Lily, your little voice say, violently persecuting is very difficult to hear. (laughs) Thank you for doing that. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, stir up your holy power this day and come. Send your spirit into our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our ears, that we might hear a word for us today anew, and that we too might then live out that which we believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I um, want to start by asking a question. I'm just, I'm not looking to shame anybody. I'm just curious, who was here last weekend and heard the sermon from last weekend? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Thank you, Pastor Joanne. I appreciate that. 
Nice. Um, so I don't know why in the world the narrative lectionary, the lectionary that we followed, decided to put these texts back to back, but in essence, they're asking the same question. So if you were here last week and you want to go get a cup of coffee and a cookie, it's basically the same sermon with just different stories. So feel free at any time to just head on out. Maybe uh, the reason that the lectionary does this is so uh, people like me who spent way too much time uh, thinking about things and pretending like I had sophisticated thoughts are sort of forced back into what is actually the basic and the most simple stuff. Because I think that's sort of what happened to me this week. I got forced to go sort of think about what in the world is actually central. The, the question that these texts, the one last week and this week, pose come out of the early church's uh, experience of trying to figure out what it means to belong, uh, what it means to be part of the Christian family, uh, how they're different from their Jewish counterparts, and what it now means to be a follower of Jesus. For lots of them, they thought that being a follower of Jesus was the new way of being Jewish, and so it caused all sorts of conflicts and issues and problems. One of the things that uh, happens is, and unfortunately having to hear Lily read these stories is difficult because for those people who were Jewish who became followers of Jesus, there were important markers that defined who they were as a people and how their relationship worked with God. And it had to do with a couple of really important things that you all actually already know. It's the law and circumcision. The law being the commandments of Moses. What does it mean to be a Jewish people of God? Well, we are followers and adherents of the Ten Commandments. We are people that listen to and follow the commands and the covenant of God that was made with our ancestors. And if you're a male, circumcision. Now, while this might seem like not a trivial thing, but a strange thing. In the Greco-Roman world, when you have to imagine that the men are out playing Olympic-style games and they are wearing no clothes, this is a definitive marker of who you are. Everyone would know. Everyone would know. <laughs> and if you're like me, or probably like them, there is some significant comfort that can be found if you are assured that your relationship with God is right. The people who followed those Ten Commandments and participated in circumcision were assured that God knew them and loved them. But what was odd is these people who had experienced Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his teaching, and were following them, had a different kind of experience that led them to think differently about these things. And the argument that Lily read in Galatians is this argument. What does it mean to belong? When I was a little kid in my neighborhood, I lived on one of these streets that I sort of think of it in my mind as like a T. Uh, we came down off of Bass Lake Road, down onto Evergreen Lane, and it went down a hill and then the uh, neighborhood roads split into two, and at both ends were cul-de-sacs. Uh, and my house was at the far end of one cul-de-sac, and my friend's house, of course, was down at the far end of the other cul-de-sac. And on one side of this street was a lake and other houses, and then behind us was a hill and a swamp. 
Uh, and when I was growing up, I don't know if any of you had this sort of experience, but the way that we knew it was time to come home is when my dad would whistle. And my dad had one of these whistles that was just unbelievably piercing. You could hear it all the way down at the other end of the street from my parents' house. So at the other end of the cul-de-sac, we would be out playing football in the backyard, and all of a sudden we would hear my dad whistle. I can't do it. Can anybody really whistle loud? Go ahead. Just, Al, do it. Go for it. Come on. No pressure. Put the gum out. Oh, that's it. That, that, I bet you that was mid-level, right? You were being kind. You were, yeah, that's... And I remember hearing that, and I swear it was that whistle that set dinner time in my neighborhood. And it wasn't like we said, well, we'll play one more down after we heard that whistle. Uh, no. It was just drop the ball and go home. Uh, and I do remember a sense sort of, of like, oh. But we did drop the ball and we all, we all went home. And lots of times, you know, whoever was with us then just sort of wandered into my house or I wandered into somebody else's house and we had dinner. There was an enormous sense of comfort and home, food and warmth. We didn't have watches, so we never knew what time it was and we didn't care. There was an enormous sense of freedom in knowing that somebody might whistle for me. This is the experience that the people who followed Jesus had. It was as if Jesus whistled and they dropped everything and went and followed him. It, it was as if Jesus whistled and they called everybody home where there was food and welcome and promise and it was a huge amount of freedom. So to go back and apply the law all of a sudden seemed really odd. It almost seemed to invalidate what Jesus was up to in the calling. Luther describes it this way. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be called? Jesus, Luther would say, I am baptized. And it's something that somebody does to you, not something that you do to somebody else or even claim as your own. It's the weirdest kind of thing. I could never have whistled myself home. The, the weird thing that God does is God whistles and calls to you before you even know that you needed to be whistled at and called home. We, we call it baptism. It's what just happened to Vivian. When Vivian is 25 years old, if she ever wonders if God's love, God loves her, she can simply stand in the middle of wherever she is in the world and declare, I have been baptized. It's the opposite of so much of our popular religious culture today that declares you must accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's all resting on your decision. And if you're anything like me, I, you know what? I am flaky as all get out. I have five books scattered throughout my house right now, two on my kitchen table, one by my bedroom, one on the floor. One, I have a mess of books everywhere. I seem to like to read like the first third, maybe, maybe two-thirds, and then I sort of be like, yeah, I get the gist of this one, throw it away, and start reading the next one. I, I never seem to finish. I am flaky as all get out. If my relationship with God is dependent on me, it's like I get two-thirds of the way done and go home. But I have been baptized. God has whistled at you, called you beloved, called you home, has nothing to do with you, and everything to do with God's love. It's an amazing gift of assurance, actually. 
And it causes this weird and strange, humble confidence in life that God is somehow walking around with you, has called you by name, and loved you. I am baptized. One of the ways, unfortunately, that we get in trouble as Christians uh, is because we start to then think that this is something that we did or we maybe even deserved, and it's really not. I, I sort of think of it this way. When I was um, in high school, still being whistled at by my dad to come home, uh, I was really, I, I, my sports that I played were all the individual kinds of things, like playing golf and downhill skiing and water skiing and things like this. When it came to team sports, like my poor little um, uh, brain uh, that uh, is so introverted just could not figure out how in the world to be on a team, especially like playing hockey. I could, what are all these other people doing? I couldn't figure it out, right? Like... It's just too much going on for me. Anyway, it sort of reminds, it reminded me of kickball. Now, this I've totally made this up, okay? But I was, I, I was not good at kickball either. <laughs> uh, but there were other people that were probably even worse. Um, but the way this works is that God actually, when you're out on the playground and you're playing kickball, God chooses the worst one first. There are all these weird stories in the New Testament about the first being last and the last being first, and the people who are day laborers all show up to work, and then the people who show up last, they get paid the same amount as the people who showed up at the beginning of the day. If you're not offended by that, then you haven't been paying attention, because that's weird. And it's exactly the way God calls to each of us. God has come for those who are sick and ill, not for those who are well, although those too we get in trouble as church people because somehow we think just because we showed up on a Sunday morning, suddenly we deserve to get choosed for the team. Cho chosen for the... Get my... <laughs> See, this is why I'm last. <laughs> I, I didn't fail any meteorological classes, though. I, anyway. God chooses the people who are last first. And as those who already showed up at the table, I, I kind of think we should be glad. Because actually, we were called first, last, also. I have been baptized. At the end of the day, well, I, I try to think in my sermons, and I think of this when I'm wandering around out in the world, like, so what? What does that mean? So who really cares? At the end of the day, does it make any difference? And I know that's kind of an odd standard, but it's also the standard that I walk around with just like you do too. And at the end of the day, I think it means this sort of thing, that you and I are called to walk around with this strange dichotomy of humble confidence, that God has whistled at you and called you by name and called you home that you wake up every morning not resting on your own accomplishments or what you have failed at, what you have done or what you have left undone, but instead to remind yourself, I have been baptized. God has come and claimed me as God's child. 
I still, like many of you, have all sorts of warm feelings of hearing that whistle. And it reminds me so often of how God has whistled so often and frequently in me when I did not deserve to be whistled at. This is the promise to which you are heirs. When you leave today and wake up tomorrow morning, God has whistled at you. I have been baptized. Amen.